0: Welcome to the Dental Master Series Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Vandermol. This podcast is dedicated to helping you become the best version of yourself, both personally and professionally. Throughout this series, you will have the opportunity to hear and learn from people who have reached high levels of success in life and in dentistry. And these same people genuinely want you to be able to do the same. I'm so honored today to have our, our guest, Dr. Bill Nudera. Welcome, Bill.
1: Hi, Matt. Thrilled to be here.
0: Great. So a little bit about uh, Bill before we get started. Um, Dr. Nudera earned his DDS from the University of Illinois in Chicago in 1999. That's my alma mater. He served for three years in the United States Air Force completing a one year AEGD residency program. While in the service, Dr. Nudera received a National Defense Service Medal and was awarded the Air Force Dental Office of the Year in 2002. Dr. Nudera completed his endo training in 2005 earning his endodontic specialty certificate as well as a master's degree in oral sciences from the university of illinois dr nudera is a diplomat of the american board of endodontics he has authored several journal publications as well as a chapter in the endodontic textbook 3d imaging in endodontics dr nudera maintains a full-time private practice limited to endodontics at specialized endodontic solutions in bloomingdale illinois it's a suburb of Chicago and holds a faculty position in the Department of Endodontics at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Dentistry. Again, welcome, Bill. I'm really glad to have you here. One thing I want to tell our listeners about, about Bill is, as an endodontist is uh, he's about the most cordial and welcoming person um, that you could ever meet. Um, uh, many of you are listening on this podcast are general dentists, and um, when you talk to Bill, it's it's not specialist to general dentist. It's, it's really uh, professional to professional. And, and what's unique about Bill and what's smart about Bill as a specialist is he has a very keen interest in making sure general dentists know as much as possible about his specialty. And um, most specialists think that's shooting yourself in the foot. And I know Bill actually goes in his community in Bloomingdale and throughout the Chicago suburbs, and he helps general dentists in his area, learn to be better at endodontics. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, Bill, I mean, every general dentist, you, you know how we are. We, we just we want to get in, get out, uh, make some money. We got to get run down the hall, do a prof, profi check. Uh, we got to cement some crowns. We got a lot of things going on in our office. And so we're always looking for that, you know, magic bullet, how to, how to do endos as fast as we can and so on. And we're going to be talking about a lot of things, but, you know, as a, for instance, you know, if, if a general dentist comes to you and goes, Hey, you know, what's, you know, give me the lowdown, what's the best file? What's, what's the best system to use? Um, you know, how do I, how do I get these endos done, uh, quickly, efficiently and, uh, and so that they'll work? What do you, what do you say?
1: So, so, uh... A couple of things here that you you may comment on, and I like to think of myself not as a fast endodontist. I'm an efficient endodontist because you know endodontics, like other aspects of dentistry, really can't be done fast. Uh, I find that when we we talk about becoming efficient, we talk about uh, not tinkering because when we get into uh, root canal systems, we access the first thing we want to do is poke around inside that tooth. And we we have to have some direction and purpose. And I draw back to some of my military days, where we would be in basic training, and some of the commanding officers would say, uh, "You know, walk with purpose. Like walk like you have somewhere to go." So being fast uh, really isn't in my vocabulary, but being efficient and treating with purpose is. We have no wasted movements in our operatory. Everything is planned. And when I work with my team member, it is a well choreographed dance that we do from start to finish. And the equipment that we use, and, and when somebody says, what do you use or what's the best to use, or uh, specifically files. And my opinion on that is that there is no best file. The best files whatever works best in your hands. Now, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there weren't as many file systems on the market and some performed better than others. But within the recent years, patents have expired. Other companies have come into the market and developed some really nice files with some really nice metallurgy. When you look in a catalog to order equipment and you go to page to order burrs, there may be a hundred pages of dedicated just to different types, shapes, flutes of birds that you want to do. Well, and endodontics is becoming like that too. You've got all these different designs, all these different ways these files can cut and prepare the root canal system. So my advice for equipment is you try a bunch of them. Find the one that works best in your hands and also is the one that's not as expensive as the others, because you have options now. There are a lot of uh, spin-off companies or new companies that have entered the marketplace that are making copies of some of these more premium files, and they work just as well at a fraction of the cost. So, you know, we want to be profitable doing these things. So. Part of our overhead comes with our file purchases. So if it's worth it for you to spend twice as much for a file because you like it better, I'm not gonna stand in your way, go for it. However, if there is very little benefit for you to, to invest that, that money into a, a file system uh, when another less expensive version is just as good, we have to consider that too. So there's really no one best.
0: Well, that's that's a great answer. I I, I love hearing about efficiency. That's um, that's how I run my office too. It's it, people are always like, well, how fast can you do a crown prep, or you know, and it's like, well, um, probably about as fast as as any other dentist because it takes so much time to cut into the dentin go around the tooth. You can only go so fast, but where where you get the speed is in the efficiency and, and using your your assistance. I had the opportunity to be in a, a an endodontist office that I think he, this is a number of years ago, but he would actually consulted with endodontists on efficiencies. And, and he told me at the time when I was, he asked me, he goes, well, how many molar root canals do you think an endodontist does in a day? And I thought, well, you know, eight hours and they're pretty good at it, you know, six or eight. And he said, no, it's four. And that really surprised me. And then, then he told me, he said, well, a lot of endodontists will really only work out of one room, maybe two. And in his office, he had, uh, you know, several operatories. He had well-trained assistants and efficiency was what it was all about. And he was doing some amazing work there. And uh, so I was, I was stunned uh, by that. And that actually uh, motivated me to get more efficient with not only my root canal procedures, but just any procedure in general. I I think that's the key. So I really appreciate your point. Yeah, it it
1: comes down to systems. And when you talk about an endodontic office treating X amount of patients per day, well, that also blossoms into your treatment philosophy. Uh, I've worked with with endodontists, great endodontists that they can crank out 10, 11 cases from start to finish every day and their work looks good. However, I can't, do that. I mean, I've tried. I Well, let me rephrase it. I can do that, but I feel that my quality suffers when I try to get too many patients in that day. And plus I come home after seeing that many patients. I'm so tired. A nice busy day for me is between five and six patients. That's a really great day for me. And, and I can take the time that I need to make sure I've done everything to the best of my ability. I come home and I sleep at night and that's my pace. Others may see four, but on the flip side, others may see eight or right. nine or even 10. So the, the options are, are out there if you understand those efficiencies and depending on, on how you like to work.
0: Let's change gears a little bit. Um, uh, you know, recently I've been seeing in some of the uh, journals and so on of uh, sort of these minimal uh, access preps, and and you know and. and in dentistry, of course, there's lots of people who are moving towards, you know, we should be doing minimum uh, dentistry, minimum removal of tooth structure. And um, I know there's new sort of technologies and so on that maybe allow for this. But I mean, then at the same time, other people are saying, you got to be able to see what you're accessing. You need to, you know, get get down there and and be able to, you know, have access to, to do a good job. I mean, is there any comments do you have about those particular techniques?
1: So we have seen in the endodontic world, a a complete shift of of how we should be preparing the root canal systems, or I should say a modern twist on the shift of how we should be uh, preparing root canal systems, keeping things more slender and more slim. Again, a couple of decades ago, we were flaring things to 06 tapers and really sacrificing a lot of internal root structure by removing the dentin because we thought we needed to do these really deep shapes. And by preparing these deep shapes, we're allowing our irrigation solutions to, to address the tissues deep inside that root canal system. Uh, but we're finding out that we can accomplish those same protocols by keeping the canal system more narrow. And it doesn't just stop at keeping the canal system more narrow. Uh, Some clinicians are extending this thought process and philosophy to the actual uh, CAVO surface outline form of their endodontic access. If we look at textbooks, and it's still being published in textbooks today of how we make our endodontic accesses, they're suggesting we make an, uh, an entrance into the pulp chamber and completely unroof the pulp chamber into the pulp horns and develop what we call this straight line access or uh, being able to visualize in your your, your mirror uh, when you're looking into the axis of a multi-rooted tooth, being able to see all orifices at the same time, that's a, a traditional access approach. Uh, but what we found out is you don't necessarily need to see all the orifices at the same time. All you need to do is see the orifice that you're treating and then just change the angulation of your mirror to treat the other ones. So that has brought the access preparation down to a much more conservative uh, process. And now, some clinicians are taking this even a step further and they're doing something uh, that that is referred to as a ninja access, poking in one little opening for each canal they're treating in a multiple rooted tooth. So now they have four independent access openings designed one for each particular canal. Now that's taking this to the extreme. Uh, you know we look at the research and the research be- there there's if we qualify accesses into three different categories something called the tra- traditional access cavity something called the the constricted yes. access cavity which is smaller and then something called this ninja access cavity when we look at the difference from the literature between these traditional access cavities and the latter two that i mentioned The literature is suggesting that these more conservative access preparations conserves dentin at the pericervical level as we go through our instrumentation protocol and therefore protecting those teeth They're making them less prone to fracture. So we know there is an advantage between our traditional access cavity and the more conservative ones. However, when you compare the the constricted access cavity and those little ninja access cavity that some clinicians are doing, there really is no significant difference. But the treatment process becomes much more difficult for the clinician the smaller the access is. So the way that we've adopted it in our practice is we've found a nice happy medium in between the traditional approach and the constricted approach so that we're trying to maximize conservation of natural tooth structure. But Matt, when it comes down to it, and what I teach general dentists, and what I teach the residents at UIC is, you gotta see the canals. And, and, And don't fight through an access. If you've gotta open it up for a better outcome, then open it up. But let's just be aware of how large we're opening up, and let's not just go too big, but let's try to find something that we can visualize but yet not be too aggressive, and that's—I know it's a vague statement, but that—that's a—that's a good philosophy to live by.
0: Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, you need to see where you're going. That's true. You don't really need to see everywhere else. I mean, it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's focus, uh, focus uh, like anything else in, in life. You focus and uh, stay in your lane. So, so that's good. I, I'm The ninja access is still cracking me up, though. I'll tell you, it, it
1: takes talent to do stuff like that. Uh, it takes time. And, and I truly respect the clinicians that have that talent to do and and the ones that actually yeah. commit to it to do for every patient. Now, I've done that, too, Matt. It's fun to do. But is it practical? And, and does right. it make sense for every case? For me, right. it doesn't.
0: Well, as a general dentist, uh, you know, many years ago after I did my residency and, you know, I sat and I wanted to learn more about, uh, you know, how to do root canals and so on. And some of the the big lectures at the time were doing these amazing, amazing things. And that's when, you know, I when I learned, you know, it was pretty much a straight canal type of thing. And we were laterally condensing our gutta percha and you know filing it out with k files and uh things like that and and then these guys Mm -hmm. came out and they were showing these delta uh root apices and you know puffs out the end of the 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 roots and, and, uh, it, and then the techniques they were using and, and they seem to overcomplicate everything. And it really scared me away. Um, because again, as, as a general dentist, and I think I'm speaking for a lot of general dentists we just, we just want to keep things simple and we, we want to stay out of trouble and we don't want to get all involved if something, if we feel like, you know, it's, it's really not going to make it, make a difference in, in the end. And, and, uh, certainly like you said, this Ninja access, yeah, it's cool. You can do it, but it didn't really make a significant difference in what your final outcome is. So yeah, it's cool to say, I can do it. But, you know, again, as general dentists, we're not so interested in that.
1: (laughs) You know, Matt, the only, the only people that make endodontics difficult are endodontists.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I believe that, (laughs) you know, uh, speaking of access and so on, um, you know the other thing is uh, uh, <clears throat> the the main thing, and and, and I, I hear this over and over again is like, well, you know, the main thing about root canals is you, you clean it out. If and and then I've heard people make you know kind of crazy statements like, as long as you get it clean, you can fill it with anything you want. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, doing obturations in a, in a moment. But but tell me tell me about clean. Tell me about what's 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 how do we open up if we do minimum access or we do enough access to get in there? We open up the canals. Like you say, we're not going to 06s anymore necessarily. Or, but how do we know that we're getting you know, getting it it is cleaned out as, as well as possible? And I realize we can't get 100%, but what, what kind of advice do you have about that?
1: So this is really where the game of endodontics, in, in my opinion, is, is won or lost, and it comes down to the entire philosophy of what endodontics is all about. It's, and it comes down to decreasing the amount of what we call internal bio load, uh, be it necrotic tissue, be it vital tissue. We're just trying to eliminate that organic material that sits inside these hollow tunnel systems that travel down the root system. And we know, based on you know at least uh, you know years, decades of research, that there's nothing that we have available to us, at least in this recent uh, year, that can effectively remove all the bio load in every little portion of the root canal system. Uh, it's been proven. Our files. Uh, there's a lot of research out there that suggests that even right. after we completely prepare our root right. canal systems, that we're leaving at least 35% or more of that root canal system wall untouched. Whereas when we're treating this as clinicians, intuitively, we're looking for clean dentinal shavings on our files, and that gives us clues that the canal walls are clean. But but realistically, the file itself only needs to touch or engage two parts of a canal wall to m- give the illusion that the 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 canal is clean based on clean file shavings inside the flutes but really these canals are ovoid there there are a lot of ramifications in there so we have to really rely on something other than instrumentation and that that really plays into the fact of our solutions and irrigations that we use so the 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 Other than removing bulk debris from the root canal system files really don't do much in terms of cleaning. So when we reach our final shapes, whatever that may be for your comfort level, we have to make sure that we're using irrigation solutions in the in the right order. And I divide uh, solutions and irrigation up into two separate categories, something I call irrigation sequencing versus an irrigation protocol. So when we talk about irrigation sequencing, those are the solutions that you're using during the shaping process, the chemomechanical shaping process of the root canal system. Those solutions, it can be sterile water. It can be anesthetic. It can be sodium hypochloride. It can be whatever you want that's an aqueous solution during your sequencing. Uh, sometimes we use a little EDTA for working in a calcified canal. Sometimes we dilute our sodium hypochlorite early on in our treatments because we don't fully understand the anatomy yet and we don't want to create a problem. Sometimes in a a tooth that's really symptomatic or was was what we call hot to begin with, sometimes I'll irrigate with anesthetic just to get that added component just to make sure that that I I have some component inside that root canal system that's going to keep that patient comfortable. So whatever I'm working on, I'm sequencing my solution based on the situation I'm dealing with. But the irrigation protocol doesn't really begin until the last file has left that root canal system. And what we start with, or what I'm recommending that we start with, and what I, what I teach all of the residents is, after that final canal has been prepared with that, and you're not shaping it or enlarging anymore, you need to start with some sort of smear layer removal solution. Matt, just like in operative dentistry, when before you do any composite bonding, you're you're etching. You're removing smear layer. You're 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 fluffing up the collagen fibers to accept that that chemomechanical bond that you're creating. Well, that same type of smear layer that gets created during operative dentistry gets created internally on the walls of the root canal system, and it's full of organic uh, material, microbiology, uh, and just just bio load. So the current protocols, when you look at textbooks and look at what they call the endodontic panels of experts, they suggest that you use an ETA, EDTA, or a smear layer removal product as the last thing you do before you obturate. But to me, that's never really made sense. Because if underneath the smear layer houses a additional bio load, Don't we want to remove that before we disinfect again? So part of my irrigation protocol after I've I've left that final file in the canal is I I remove the smear layer first with a 17% concentration solution of EDTA. And it's just generic EDTA. There are a lot of designer smear layer removal irrigations on the market sold by just about every company out there. They work. They work as advertised, but the question is, is, do they work better? Is there any evidence that using those designer smear layer removal products give you a better success rate? Well, not to my knowledge, but they are more expensive. So my rationale or my thought process when somebody asks me about what I call a designer smear layer removal solution is, does it cost any more than a generic bottle of EDTA? And if it does not, use it. But if it does, are you really getting any more benefit from the money you're spending on these sorts of things? And believe me, I've tried them all. I use generic 17% EDTA as the first solution, followed by sodium hypochlorite. Because once I remove that smear layer, now I have access to those tubules. I have access to whatever's beneath that smear layer, so I have a better chance of reducing the internal bio load and the concentration of sodium hypochlorite can be used as little as 0.5% all the way up to, I think they're selling it now at 8.25%, and you have the same antimicrobial efficacy within that range. However, if you choose to dilute your sodium hypochlorite you are going to be sacrificing one property that I find to be very advantageous is the ability of that solution to digest and dissolve organic material with inside that root canal system. So if you're going to dilute your sodium hypochlorite, which is fine, the the United States model is using high strength sodium hypochlorite, where you go to like Australia or even in Europe, they're diluting this stuff down maybe even to one or one and a half percent. And their results are comparable to what we're doing here. So does the concentration matter? Well, to some it does, to some it doesn't. The, the problem with irrigation protocols at the end is there's no consistency within the endodontic literature as far as what exactly should be done irrigation recommendations are all completely arbitrary based on feelings and what makes us feel better sometimes so and that's that's the case i mean endodontics is a philosophy right. yep. uh you know i look at prosthodontics it's geometry you want draw I look at orthodontics; it's engineering, you know. You, it's physics. You want to kind of pull things and move things. But endodontics, it's it's a philosophy because everybody's got their own way of doing it. And I'll bet you when you compare these two ways of doing it at the end, they're both going to have their equal amount of success rates. So it's whatever you feel hmm. comfortable doing.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it was interesting. I, I saw a demonstration once of uh, how. Uh, basically, bleach breaks down organic matter. And uh, what the guy did is he he uh, basically had a container of it, and he sliced a hot dog in there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, he was actually showing and advocating heating uh, sodium hypochloride. And I don't know what you feel about that, but it was interesting because he when he heated it up, it when he, first when he put the hot dog in there, it was definitely breaking down. But when he heated it up, it like dissolved. So it was a uh, was interesting, but I. I never tried it. I was a little nervous about putting hot anything down in the. In the you know,
1: <laughs> yeah. Pa- patients don't like it when you ask for the hot bleach, but, but on, on that note there, the literature does suggest that warm sodium hypochlorite digests the tissue more efficiently than cold so, or room temperature sodium hypochlorite, but activation also di- dissolves the tissue Fashion, they just let it bathe there. So there are other adjuncts that we can use to our irrigation protocols to help the efficiency of the solutions as opposed to just heat. Heat's one of them. I don't personally heat up my sodium hypochlorite either, um, but I do know some clinicians that do. So it, it's based on your philosophy again.
0: Okay. So let's move on to, uh, let's talk about, okay, we got this thing cleaned out or we feel like it's cleaned out. <laughs> we have a good feeling about it. Okay. So, so now mm-hmm. what, what do we, what do we fill it up with? What do, do we, you know, does, do we need warm gutta percha or cold? Do we have pre pre-made uh, cores do you know, what, what, what's best? So
1: gutta percha is really the, the standard of care uh, at least Currently in endodontics, you know, I don't know how much longer gutta percha is going to be around, but it is still around. Uh, it's cost-effective, uh, and it 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 works, and it's predictable, and it's in the literature for you know decades. Uh, but what we have to understand, though, it's not the gutta percha that's sealing the root canal system. Gutta percha is basically providing bulk support for your sealer. So the, the bigger question is, is what type of sealer should we be using? Uh, and based on the type of sealer, what type of obturation techniques are, are applicable to the type of sealer you're using? So if we look at obturation, we can break it down into cold techniques, warm techniques. Uh, and then within the warm techniques, you can break it down to, pure gutta persia techniques or some sort of carrier based technique so the the short answer is they all work and they all don't work depending on your technique the technique sensitivity and how it's applied based on the end user uh there's been a big push recently for the the introduction of bioceramic sealers now bioceramic sealers have been around for at least 10 years in endodontics, but they're gaining significant popularity within the last few years. And if we look at sealer types, we've got eugenol-based sealers, we've got resin-based sealers, and we've got a bioceramic-type sealer. Now, within the first two, your eugenol-based and resin-based sealers, you end up getting a little bit of a resorption of the sealer over time. You may seal a sealer puff at your final fill, but at the year recall, at the five-year recall, that's gone because of the, the reaction the body has and the macrophages come and eat all that stuff up, and that's great. But what that also tells me is that that also can create apical percolation with inside that apical foramen which can create uh, nutrients for residual bio load that may not have been treated to cause an eminent failure. Now, I'm not saying these sealers cause failures. There's a lot of other possibilities. these things to create these post-treatment disease effects but the reason why these bioceramic sealers have gotten a really heavy push lately is because number one they're a little more hydrophilic so even though we're still supposed to dry the root canal system they can tolerate a little bit more moisture than your resin or eugenol based sealers but they also don't degrade or resorb over time so when i see a sealer puff at my final fill that two, three, four, five-year recall, I'm still going to see that sealer puff. Now, there's been some recent research that suggests that some of these bioceramic materials can be resorbed, but in the vast majority of of the cases I see, it's rare that that Mm -hmm. happens. So now we have a sealer that sets up really well in a more of a hydrophilic situation and doesn't dissolve over time. So I've Gotten on the the track of doing the bioceramic sealers, and how we apply it is more or less an injection technique. And I'm using it in a cold form. Uh, I'm I'm mainly a single cone obturation clinician because in previous techniques where we rely on a bulk of gutta percha and a thin coat of sealer because the sealer is not dimensionally stable over time. We rely on the gut of perch to become dimensionally stable. Well, now the bioceramic sealer is dimensionally stable over time. And the, the cone that you apply through, through a a canal that's flooded with bioceramic sealer creates dispersion uh, of the actual sealer itself. And that creates the hydraulics you need for that, that sealer to go into all those parts of the root canal system. But if you ask most endodontists, they're going to still claim that they do a warm vertical technique. That is still the accepted or what's claimed to be the accepted way of obturating the root canal system. The warm vertical technique suggests that you have to have a heat plugger advanced to within the apical three to five millimeters of that root canal system. and. I've seen other endodontists work, I've talked to other endodontists, but I would assure you that most endodontists out there are not able to get their plugger to within that range in every single canal. So essentially what they end up doing with their implied warm vertical technique is is a glorified single cone technique. So I've kind of stopped kidding myself a long time ago, that I'm actually downpacking and creating this apical plug and warming up this apical three to five millimeters because I know from my experience it's extremely challenging to do that every time. So I've gone to rely more on the sealer than the gutta percha to create that seal. And that's why I've made that switch.
0: That's very interesting. Um, so, really, it's about the sealer, but there's probably a certain amount of thickness of the sealer that you're looking for. So when you say a single cone, you're getting some sort of a tug back or some kind of pull on that cone, right? Or no?
1: Not not necessarily. In a single cone technique, we rely on sealer displacement. So a tug back is another fallacy sometimes that we hear with, with endodontic treatment. And that was big when I was in school, and maybe as you were too, we both went to UIC. We've probably had a lot of the same instructors, believe it or not, and, and, and they're like, you want that tug back, you want that tug back. But where are we tugging back at? Is the, is the cone binding in the apical third? Is it binding somewhere in the mid root? Or is it binding in the coronal? Anytime that cone binds anywhere, you're going to get the, the tactile sensation of tug back, but intuitively you think it's in the apical third, but you never know for sure. So tug back also isn't really high on my list of a priority.
0: You know, Bill, you brought up, uh, and, and this is, I, I'm getting this cause we're getting a lot of the, uh, the, um, Sort of the internet things about you know root canals being the source of uh, inflammation and and uh, linking it to heart disease uh, and we have a few physicians in our town now that are actually sending patients to me and asking me to take cone beams to look for uh, periapical abscesses and and their assumption is is that if there is anything there that 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 in fact is a a source for inflammation and therefore a source that uh, you know, part of the inflammatory process that, that can be linked to heart disease. And I was just, you know, I've told him, I said, I I can't, from what I know, just because you see a a root canal and you see a radiolucency there doesn't mean that there's active things going on there. I don't think. What would you say to that? What, what, what's your position on that kind of stuff?
1: So. Every time something like this makes the news, uh, and the most recent one was the the documentary that had just aired on on Netflix, Root Cause, Uh, it's based on something called the focal infection theory, where bacteria from one particular area, specifically in our case, a periapical lesion, could then travel throughout the entire body and infect other organ systems, creating a systemic condition. Uh, root canals have been linked to every sort of systemic disease out there, but that sort of process of this focal infection infection theory has been debunked years ago. And it's the position of the a, American Association of Endodontists that that is just not a a, a correlated event. Uh, So here's the way I I put it. If, if, you know, there are people out there that believe in it and far be it for me to counteract or contradict somebody's belief system. And I'm not out there to try to convince somebody else that their tooth is not the cause of, of their their ails. People are looking for something to blame their problems on. And, and sometimes root canals get, get that blame. And what we do know about root canal treatment is we know we don't remove all the bacteria from the tooth. So when, when you get these, these articles or these movies or these documentaries that suggest that bacteria still survive within inside root systems, well, there's some truth to that. But the question is, is does that bacteria have any influence or any factors on systemic conditions. And the current thought process is no, it doesn't, because of of testing and and, and articles that have been published again over the years disproving that. So if a patient comes into me and and believes that that they don't want to do root canal treatment because they've heard or read or seen that it's going to be a constant problem and a continued source of, of an issue, I say, well your other option is to have the tooth removed. I'm not there to convince you to have the root canal done. I'm giving you an option to have the root canal done, but certainly extracting your tooth will be a hundred percent successful. And then if the patient comes in, it's tooth number eight or nine, watch how fast they do the root canal because yeah, they don't want to lose eight or nine, right? So it, it really, I, I'm, I give them my philosophy. I tell them I don't subscribe to that philosophy. But if that's what they believe, your alternative option would be a tooth extraction, and I let the patient make that decision.
0: From a practical uh, treatment planning position for for those of us general dentists, you get a new patient in your office. They've had, you know, two or three root canals. You have no other. You know, you don't have any history. You don't have any previous radiographs on these patients. They're having no symptoms, um, and you look and and uh, and you see. You know a radiolucency by a tooth, and it's also a tooth that um, you're thinking. um, You know, I'd like to make that tooth a bridge abutment. Um, You know, what kind of things, what kind of thought processes should we be going through, or what should we be communicating to the patient about that that tooth, about that that tooth? Yeah, that it's it has no symptoms. We want to use it for an abutment. Uh, is that one that we would automatically maybe send to you to say, yeah, let's, let's retreat that just in case, or how, how would you go through that? Well,
1: I think just to mitigate risk, uh, the opinion by the specialist will be beneficial for, for your, the general dental, the general dentist. Um, yeah. but the thing is, it, you gotta understand what your endodontist's philosophy is with that. And I go, I say this a lot, philosophy because I have some cases right. that, you know, I've done 10, 11, 12 years ago uh, that I've been monitoring for a decade. A lesion has not completely gone away, but the patient remains asymptomatic. Okay. And over 10 years, the lesions stayed the same size. So the question is, is it's there. We know what it is. We know it's not healthy tissue. We know it's not scar tissue. I know a lot of dentists say, well, it could be a scar. It's not a scar it's some sort of granulomatous tissue of some kind. The question is, is it infected tissue? Well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know unless we do histology on it. So there's there is a philosophy called lesion monitoring, meaning we monitor this lesion. It could stay small for two decades and all of a sudden the next year could just be massive. So we have to just understand what those risks are if we're going to not treat but the but to your point you get the new patient uh let's say a patient i've been monitoring for 10 years lesions never change size and this patient picks up and moves to texas and goes to a new dentist and all of a sudden the dentist takes him and say uh oh look at tooth number 30 there's a lesion there we've got to retreat this tooth and now the patient has to you know understand that you know how much information did the patient get from me Uh, about what's going on. Are there any symptoms? Did it change size? So now this new dentist is starting over. So it, I would say that most endodontists in a situation where they see a lesion on a tooth are recommending treatment, but not all are. So I really kind of lay out all the options for the patient. And, And by the way, we're talking about an asymptomatic lesion tooth with prior root canal treatment and where the root canal treatment appears to be adequately treated with the technique okay so let's let's have those qualifiers if it's short if it's if there's something it can be improved upon yeah most likely we're going to recommend retreatment but if everything looks like it falls within line of what it should and we have a lesion there i'll tell the patient here are our options we could retreat this tooth we could Surgerize this tooth, or we can do nothing, but it depends on what the restorative plan is going to be. If your dentist is going to be putting a bridge on this tooth, I'm not 100% certain that we won't have to do something at some point in time. Because if we're going to invest in using this tooth as a support for a multi unit bridge, and something happens to that tooth in the future. We're not just talking about one tooth anymore we're talking about multiple teeth so i may be more inclined to treat something in that aspect as opposed to right. maybe a freestanding single crown tooth because the risk of of morbidity if something should happen to that tooth is less so it's going to be case by case but but there are some that recommend monitoring and i have no problem i've i've sent away many patients saying you know, I have better chance of making your case worse because you've been asymptomatic for so long with this, uh, then making it look better and getting healing. So uh, again, it's, it's very right. important to me right. to explain everything to the best I can to the patient and my general dentist that's referred the case to me so that we're all on the same page and let the patient make the decision on what they feel is best for them with all the information.
0: That's a great answer. I um just, and while you're bringing this up, I, um, and I want to, I want to get to talking to you about, um, you know, what, what you, uh, offer uh, general dentists through your, uh, P3 endodontics course, but I just want to, um, because there's always this sort of this, um, you know, um, uh, I don't know if tension's is the best word, but there's always this uncertainty, I guess, between the general dentist and the, um, and specialists in, in a lot of, uh, situations. And I, I hear it all the time, you know, this sort of this back and forth. And, and, uh, I, I have a really good relationship with my specialist, but I was just uh, wondering, you know, what, what, what would you say? What, what should a general dentist expect from their special specialist and then uh, turning it around the other way? What, what should the specialist, um, expect from their general dentist?
1: Matt, I, I love this question. Uh, uh, in. It, it, it's it's interesting because when I'm at the university teaching residents in the endodontic department, uh, we work with not only residents, but third and fourth year dental students that are just entering into the clinic. And when they come to us with a case, you, you see their eyes, they're just absorbing this information. They want to learn and they have so much uh, respect for what you say in your recommendation. It's like you, are the all-knowing person, and you're gonna tell me what to do, and everything's gonna be just fine. And that's great. But something happens after graduation to some clinicians, not all of them, because I've got great relationships with most of my referring doctors, Uh, and most of them still value my opinion. I love having a seat at the table. Uh, But there are others, based on the personalities, that just wanna give you orders. Like, this is part of my treatment plan. I don't do root canals. You go here and do the root canal, and I want that root canal done. You know, unfortunately, in my early years, when when I was trying to manage that referral relationship, I, I lost some referrals because my philosophy didn't line up with what they were asking me to do. And it goes back to that, can I sleep at night? Uh, I didn't feel that some teeth needed root canal treatment, but this doctor really wanted me to do it. And they basically said, well, if you don't do it, I'm not sending you my cases anymore. You know, what do we do? We have to walk this fine line of ethics of what, what, what we should and shouldn't do. But fortunately uh, most, most of my doctors, we've been able to communicate and cultivate these relationships. So I say from, and, and I, I was a general dentist before I went into endodontics. So I, I've looked at it and I've seen this from both sides when I was a general dentist working with the endodontists that I worked with. And I, by the way, when I was a general dentist, I was doing 90% of my own root canal treatments because I loved it. Right. But I'd have an endodontist that I always bounce ideas off of, and this endodontist that I chose to work with was always willing to accept me doing endodontics, and that's why we worked together. He never judged me for making a mistake, and always we always had good communication. Also, I never sent him a referral slip that says do or finish root canal and tooth number 30 without telling him there was a problem with it, uh, and and I get that. I now I'll get these these what we call surprises, right? These little souvenirs that are left behind that the patient doesn't know about. Uh, either it's a perforation, uh, either it's a, a broken instrument, and and we 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 can see this stuff. By the way. And, and we see it on the cone beam. We, we know there's a problem. And now we have to walk that fine line of communicating to the patient that, you know, we've got to repair something. Mm-hmm. We don't want to point any fingers. But it becomes a much more challenging relationship when we're working with the dentist that really doesn't communicate with us as well as we would like to versus those that do. Uh, so right. just like any other relationship, not just within dentistry, but in life, the more you communicate with that person, the more they understand, and you understand each other, and you work together for the common good as opposed to just dumping on you. When we first opened our practice in 2006, there was an endodontist right across the street, one in every other town around us, and we were in a completely saturated area. I opened with a partner, and and we went out there, we marketed but right. what we found in the first year is we, we, we call ourselves an endodontic garbage can because we would get all the stuff that everybody else wouldn't get and all the other referring doctors that all the other endodontists had fired already. So we had to go out and we had to work our butts off to really build <laughs> our reputation and, and do something different in order to establish the practice we have today. So it wasn't easy kind of trying to make your name for yourself but uh, it was definitely a different perspective being a specialist as opposed to the generalist at the time.
0: Right. And, and, you know, their, your point about talking to each other, but I think, uh, you know, you owe it that general dentist should be owning up to, to reasons why that they're referring to the specialist in the, in the first place. I mean, you know, obviously when there's no problems, you say, Hey, look, this, this is a difficult case. Uh, You know, you're going to see, see Dr. Nudera. He's, you know, he, he does these kind of, he likes these kind of tough cases and you're in the best hands with him and and you do that. But then if there's a broken file or, or whatever, you know, the general dentist really needs to tell that patient, Hey, you know, this, this happened and uh, but good news um, got Dr. Nudera down the
1: street. it's easier for the endodontist to soften the blow and mitigate the situation if the patient's aware of it before the endodontist tells them every every time, every time. And, and you mentioned uh, earlier about this P3 endodontics that I'm working with through Sunrise Mental Solutions. Uh, I work with some clients. I I mentor them and I help them understand uh, how to, to go through these cases, how to be efficient with their treatment. Yes. We also try to push the scope of their practice. I try to encourage the clients I work with to access as many teeth as they feel comfortable. But here's how you do that without upsetting your patient because clearly if we're trying to access teeth and learn how to move forward in our progression and scope of practice, inevitably we're going to run into a handful of teeth that maybe are a little bit over our heads or maybe something happened. So if you're in a position where we're looking at a case and we're like, no, it, it's, it's on the borderline, but right. well, let's see if we can do it. The conversation has to be had with the patient before that bird touches the tooth, say, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, yeah, you know, it looks like I can do this. I feel pretty confident I can do this, but I may not know until I get in there. And I may find that once I see what's going on inside the tooth, it may be beyond what I can do. Are you willing to let me do it? I'd love to try but if I can, I assure you, I'll make sure I get you to somebody that can. So if they understand that that may be the outcome before you get started, the patient's going to be more apt to allowing you to start that treatment and you've got your parachute. So it's it's a win-win. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's a definite win. And, and you know, all of us general dentists know, you know, our, our patients have a lot of trust in us as general dentists. Mm. Too much. So, in a lot of cases, they, they they would have us do any surgery, whatever, just so that they don't so have true. to go meet some new doctor somewhere. Um, their their fear, their fear of you know, just. Everybody's fear of change, and it's it's really huge. Uh, they trust you, and so they're like, oh, you're going to send me someone I haven't met yet. So, I mean, I mean, as a general dentist, that's the language you need to do when you're pushing it. But I, I think the same thing that all of us general dentists need to do is really promote the specialists. And and in my office, we promote our specialists by saying, you know, you know, because there's several. Uh, specialists uh, here in Springfield where I'm at, but we only really send to one. And we tell our patients, we go, you need to see this particular doctor. We go to this doctor when we need root canals. This is a doctor we go to, he's going to take really good care of you, you know, and so that's a lot of promotion. And then I always ask my endodontist and my surgeon and my periodontist, I ask them to say basically a couple of things. When the patient comes in, they go, Hey, uh, I'm, you know, Dr. Vandermolen, Dr. Vandermolen's patient. And all they need to say is, you know what, you're, that's great. Dr. Vandermolen is an awesome dentist. That's all they need to say. They don't need to say he's that I'm better than anybody else, but they need to tell that patient that they made a good decision. And, you know, they can keep their turkeys at, Thanksgiving time, or whatever they're going to send, but if they would tell tell all my patients that that uh, that myself and my two associate doctors are are really great dentists, that's all I need to do, and and that's a great working relationship in addition to the communication. But we do the same thing; we promote the heck out of our specialists because we know it's a big uh, fear factor for our patients to go to another office, and. Um, So anyway, that's my little bit on that. But tell us more about P3 endodontics. What else do you teach besides (laughs) communication skills, which is very important, by the way?
1: (laughs) Well, the P3 endodontics program is a customized program that I do for, for general dentists that are looking to expand the scope of our practice. Anybody from a recent grad who maybe got a uh, just some basic endodontic education in school to clinicians that have maybe 10, 12, 15 years out that already understand right. endodontics, but maybe wanna take their endodontics to a different level. Uh, you know, we leave school and I left my program doing a handful of endodontic cases. And I really didn't like endodontics when I left school. I was I, I was humbled by the the specialty, and I and I like to say, as I've said it before, <laughs> so if you've heard me say this, uh, you may, I'm just repeating myself. But I knew it. I knew just enough not to be dangerous, but not enough to be confident with my skills. You know, it wasn't until I was being able to to train with a mentor that actually took the level of, of my knowledge and applying that knowledge to the next level. And, and once I did that, you know, I would go and I'd spend some time with this endodontist and we would talk about my cases and I would go into him, and and he'd tell me what he liked. He'd be, he'd be frank with me. He wouldn't just, you know, you know, wink and say, Oh, good job. Good job. He'd say, here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. So tell me what I don't tell me what you don't like about it and, and how to do it better. And then all of a sudden I'd do it better and I'd go into his office Hey, look, look, doc, I got lucky. And then after, after so often he goes, you know, Bill, you're not getting lucky anymore. You're becoming predictable. And these core concepts are, are something that I teach my clients, something I teach the residents because they stand the test of time. A root canal is a root canal is a root canal. If you understand how to actually set the stage to address the anatomy, then it doesn't matter what you use or how you use to get there. So the course that I offer is going to be honed in based on your particular needs. The needs for a recent graduate are much different than the needs of a clinician who's got a decade of experience. So it, it we, we go through every sort of protocol and, and the program there's, there's no real end to the program. It's whenever you feel that you've gotten out of it, what you need. And when you've gotten out of it, what you need, then you can move on, but you can always come back, right? We're trying to build a community, a community of people that love this just as much as I do. So most of what we do is didactic work, Uh, over the phone stuff. They'll email me images. We'll have a chat before they go in. We'll talk about strategies, uh, what the anatomy looks like, what we should be looking for. uh, And it evolves into the clinicians coming to my practice. We work with their team members. We work with their organization, their file setups, uh, how we can set up treatment rooms within short periods of time to turn a regular operatory that for operative dentistry into a nice endodontic suite within the matter of 10 to 15 minutes with just maneuvering a few things and positioning a few things and and building uh streamlined carts that house your your equipment uh but we i also offer the opportunity to go into your practice once we've worked together and it's not right away it's staged once we understand the, the didactics of it, the concepts, once we've gone through a couple of cases, once you've implemented my systematic and methodical protocol through this, this algorithm approach that I'm doing, uh, then you get a chance to, to see me apply it. Uh, people are in my clinic all the time, and I can come to your clinic and fine-tune it as we move through this process, so there's just so many options based on your particular Bill, needs.
0: Bill, I know firsthand that that you're an awesome uh, teacher and instructor, and and uh, and just your whole approach to things, um, you know, taking things one at a time and taking people where they're at, they're at, and to to build to a next level, uh, you're you're just an expert at that. So I'm I'm just totally excited that that you're <laughs> doing this and and really offering. Uh, so much more than the typical endodontic program does because generally the the programs that are out there are some place that might have you know multiple uh stations if you will and you're working on extracted teeth or blocks or things like that and you, you go you go through all these things and you pay tons and tons of money but you do, you never really get exposed to the reality of of how you do it in practice, and it sounds like that's what you, that's what's unique about what you're doing. You're 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 going over the basics, but you're saying, okay, well, here's how you really get it set up. Here's again, when we started our conversation uh, today, was efficiency. It all goes back to efficiency. That's awesome.
1: You're absolutely right. And, and you know these these modular approaches to the the endodontic education system—they're good. I mean, there's a lot of good programs out there. You but you can go to YouTube, you can go to Dental Town, you can go to a, a lot of places that have a lot of. Media, uh, Facebook, Instagram—a lot of good stuff that people are sharing out there. But the only way to get better at endodontics is to do it. Uh, these weekend courses offered by by right. product companies—those are fine right. too. But let's let's be real—they're trying to sell you something, right? They want to sell you their product. Although the speakers at these companies—they're friends of mine, they're colleagues of mine, and I respect them. Uh, they've got a lot of good information. So there's nothing wrong with those systems, but how you get better. Right. is getting your hands in those root canal systems not during the weekend courses but what are you going to do when you get back to your clinic are those course instructors going to be there to help guide you through it most likely
0: not how, how would someone find out more about the program and um, you know do they contact you how, how is there a website they can go to how, how would they do that
1: Right now, the program is being run through the Sunrise Dental Solutions coaching program with, with Tony Fex. So uh, right now, I'm exclusively within that group uh, okay. offering, offering this coaching program through, through, that, uh, through Tony's program. Uh, the future may change and may hold something different. But right now, I'm exclusively working with those particular clients. So if you're interested in doing something like that, I, I strongly encourage you to reach out to the Sunrise Dental Solutions people and, and see what your options are for joining the P3 endodontics program.
0: Right. So you would go to sunrisedentalsolutions.com and then I'm sure there's a link to, to yourself and then the, the program. You got it. That's awesome. Well, Bill, thank you so much. Uh, just for our listeners, it took us three tries to get this together. To t- technology <laughs> things, and that was probably my fault. Um, but Bill, I really appreciate you uh, sharing uh, with us. Um, it's a little bit unique in that um, most most of my guests, or throughout this podcast, will most likely be general Dennis and and the things that we talk about. And uh, and it's just been really uh, gratifying. And 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 you are, you are you and I are friends, and and uh, we've known each other for a while now. And um, and I just know that. You You have a special place uh, in your heart, really, for a general dentist to to be able to do it right. And and I appreciate you and, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much.
1: Well, you're very welcome. And I appreciate this, this opportunity to share my, my passion with, with you and your listeners and Matt, we've just scratched the surface. So well, there's a <laughs> lot more we can talk about. So if you ever want to talk into okay. again, you I'm going to take you me. up on
0: that. Thanks again. And, uh, this has been a podcast with Dr. Bill Nudera. See you next time.
1: You've been listening to the Dental Master Series, a periodic podcast on timely and stimulating topics for the success-driven dentist. You can find more Dental Master Series podcasts at sunrisedentalsolutions.com or by searching for the Dental Master Series on your favorite podcast app. The Dental Master Series was created by Sunrise Dental Solutions, an exclusive community of highly successful practicing dentists who have succeeded through different paths, working as a group, to meet the collective needs of their clientele. To learn more about how Sunrise Dental Solutions can optimize your practice and assist you in defining and achieving your vision, call 1 800 750 0737 or visit sunrisedentalsolutions.com.